My name is Trip Warman, and in this episode of SMEA VC, I sat down with Patricio Brito, co-founder of Fitzer, Mexico's first hard seltzer. Prior to founding Fitzer, Patricio held roles for Lime in France, Spain, and Switzerland. And before Lime, he was Uber's lead operations and logistics manager for the Caribbean out of their Mexico City office. Patricio earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from Yale University, as well as an MBA from Wharton. In this episode, we learned why so many Wharton MBAs work in Latin America, how tax unions exert influence to ensure Uber does not enter their markets, how Fitzer entered the Mexican alcohol oligopoly and competed for both market share and scarce resources. And we also talked about why Patricio lives in Monterrey, Mexico. We discussed all this and more in this episode of Samia VC. Patricio, could you start by telling the audience a bit more about your work history up to and including co-founding Fitzer? Sure. So let's just start from scratch, actually. Um, I'm Patricio, born in, in New York, um, grew up in Ecuador, half Dominican, uh, did my, my, my high school and elementary school in Ecuador, uh, did undergrad at Yale, political philosophy and international development, wanted to change the world then went into uh, the CFPB, uh, a new agency built by the Obama administration to avoid another financial crisis. So did financial regulation for a couple of years and then wanted to work in the Caribbean and and uh, got this opportunity to work for Uber launching its Caribbean markets with an amazing team. Uh, somehow ended up being based out of Mexico City to do that. Uh, so that's where my first, my, my first uh, interaction with Mexico. Um, left Uber to start this JV operations company in Switzerland with a couple of friends. Uh, and we had a JV with uh, Limebike at that point. It was, it was a small company uh, that had a couple of markets in the southwest, southeast of the U.S. Um, and it ended up becoming this big company called Lime. And we got acquired and, and rolled into uh, the larger organization. Meanwhile, I was doing my MBA at Wharton uh, um, and uh, uh, went, uh, me and my co-founders and the whole team in Europe, we, we became part of the Lime team uh, and we helped launch the rest of Europe, Paris, Spain, and uh, Germany, et cetera. And uh, I, I brought a couple of people from Uber and from Wharton on board for the Latin American team. Um, I left a lime to continue doing my Wharton MBA and also because I had had this conversation with uh, with a couple of friends at the MBA that we should that there was this white space to create a new category of beverages in Latin America and I think what I've been doing is bringing new categories of things to different places that don't have them so uh, it made sense uh, just just in terms of the way I think and the way I, I do things to do this and I was more excited to do that than, than be an employee uh, at that point. So um, I quit, uh, gave up a bunch of equity on that, on, on that end, but it was, it, was, it was the right thing for me and um, decided to move to, to that Mexico was the best market to launch. And within Mexico, uh, Monterey uh, made the most sense. We wanted to make sure we could prove market fit quickly somewhere that wasn't that costly to do where we can show traction. Um, and so there's three big cities in Mexico. Mexico City is the most expensive one to launch. It's huge and it's hard to prove traction in consumer goods. It just takes a long time. 
Monterrey and Guadalajara uh, seem like the next options. There's Querétaro and León, which are smaller cities. Uh, Monterrey has between five to six million people um, and has the highest GDP per capita in Mexico. It also has the highest consumption of light beer and sparkling water. Um, and uh, one of the trends that we were looking at uh, when it comes to hard seltzer was uh, health and wellness. So where is the strongest health and wellness trend? And it's definitely here in Monterrey. Uh, and so we spent our whole second year of our MBA working on this idea, working on our pitch, uh, traveling to different countries. We first thought of doing this in Central America because we thought smaller countries quicker to get a product market fit. But the amount of hours that you dedicate to a business is the same if it's in Russia or in China or if it's in, in, in Fiji. It really doesn't matter. And so you want to get to like the largest market possible because uh, you get more bang for your buck there. Um, also, it's easier to fundraise. And, and so we just spent our whole year fundraising and trying to figure out how to make this happen, how to develop a product, how to uh, develop the brand, uh, how to develop a go-to-market strategy. And four days after graduation, we picked up our, our bags and moved to Monterrey and launched the same year uh, in December, 2019. And we've been, and uh, since then we raised a seed round in, uh, in 19. Then last year we started raising a pre-series A round. And then this year we just closed a huge deal um, and with the large media conglomerate here in Mexico. Uh, it's probably our largest check yet. And, we are around uh, $10 million in total of, of fundraised uh, capital in the last, in, th in these three years. And so it's been, it's been a huge uh, undertaking. Uh, I think we've been in all the ups and down that, downs that comes with, uh, with being a founder and, um, and super excited to see what's, what's next. I think we, we poked a couple of bears here when we created the first hard seltzer in Mexico and Latin America. And uh, we always wanna do things differently. So we created this also unique network of dark stores to sell our product directly to consumers. Um, we became the first uh, beverage company in Mexico to become a B Corp. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of things that we've been trying to do to disrupt the status quo in the beverage industry. Uh, as I did previously in other industries, transportation or, or financial regulation. Um, and and yeah, this is where we are. That was, that was a very long intro, sorry. Do not be sorry. That was a very good intro. Hey, tell us a little bit more about how you raised that money uh, to start you know, the first hard seltzer in Mexico. Are there food VCs in Mexico? Are you looking at food VCs in the United States? And are VCs like drinking the beverage in that, that that initial meeting, how how does that work? Yeah, so at the beginning, it was it was difficult to get uh, just just out of the gate. We started with angels because I think you need to start from like the bottom of the pyramid to 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 get to the top of the pyramid in terms of fundraising. Uh, you want to have like a really strong uh, pitch, a really strong story before you get to like the the top VCs. Uh, it's something I. I always recommend our, our, our really big mistake. We, we got we got into Mexico City. We weren't even here. We're just in our MBAs. And we, we got a meeting with a, a big family office. 
and we didn't even know what we were going to do for distribution or how distribution worked in Mexico. And that was like a complete failure on our part for, because this, this, this is why you need to pitch a lot to get, it's kind of like playing Zelda, you know, or I don't know what the, that was a very nineties reference, but, but whatever game you have different bosses that you need to work your way up to. Um, and so we started with angels, a lot of family and friends who believed in us, uh, understood the category. Um, and then we started reaching out to people in the industry. So people who are either in production and and distribution or know about alcohol in Mexico. And we started pitching it to them. It made sense for them. For them. And so they started investing and we started creating this, uh, I don't know if it's a moat, but uh, for us, it's uh, how do you get the most people around that you need in your business to be successful, to be part of the round? So how do you get a distributor, a producer, uh, people who understand how to build a brand in the space, how and how to manage a brand. So we brought in really interesting people like the CEO of Heineken Latin America, um, uh, people who who had been doing distribution here for a while, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, this created uh, this ability to, to have this network uh, uh, that helped us really through the pandemic when we couldn't get cans we just had to call a couple of people and we were able to, to get through that. Um, and on the, on the side of VCs, um, and then we, and that helped us move into family offices and corporate venture funds. And, and we were able to close a couple of those. Um, in terms of VCs in the US, most of the CPG VCs in the US that are to do smaller size checks, um, they do them, you, I think in CPG, you need to have some traction. For, for anyone to look at you. Um, and once you have some traction, there are this medium-sized VCs that you can get um, less than a million dollars or between one and two, three million dollars. Um, but those VCs tend to be very regional or very national. They don't really invest outside of the US Canada. Um, and so Mexico is a hard, it's a hard one. And then the ones who can invest, they need to do really big checks. Uh, so you're talking about your VGM partners, um, Errol Cartington, um, and then there are P firms in Mexico. I remember we were we, for for pre-series A, we paid, we were we got into an investment committee, and there were the partners all loved it, the LPs liked it, but at the end of the day, it's really hard to pitch a startup to a, a P firm because it's really outside their scope and their thesis. And even if they love you, at the end of the day, they 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 came out they they can't go against their their main thesis, right? It's uh, usually more mature companies that they invest in. Um, I don't know if I, I answered the question. You certainly did. You certainly did. Okay. So in in your intro answer, you mentioned that you poked some incumbent bears. Right. So, so there's this duopoly uh, in terms of beer here in Mexico. In most countries, it's a monopoly in Latin America. But here in Mexico, there's two large ones. It's Heineken and ABI. They both bought the large, uh, the two large uh, beer companies, the, the one from the north and the one from the center and the south of Mexico. Um, and uh, they didn't really have it in their plans to launch a hard seltzer. Uh, and, and so... Uh, we we felt pretty comfortable when we launched in 2019. We're like, well, we're gonna be we're gonna be the first mover advantage for like three years, 
until because in their pipeline it wasn't until 2023 or 20 or late 2022 where they would launch and so we're, so we were pretty comfortable with that and and then they started moving really fast because they didn't want to let uh, another independent brand like it happened in the U.S. take over the the hard seltzer market. So they 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 did it a lot earlier than they thought. Um, and so it also helped us to bring awareness to the category and 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 build a category because when it's just one brand, it's it's not a category. It's just it's just one brand that does something different, right? Um, or one product that's a little bit different. Um, and so that helped uh, bring some awareness to the category. And that, and now with what we're gonna do with um, with ma mass media, uh, this is gonna bring another level of awareness to the category and hopefully uh, we'll be poking more, more bears uh, so that they start investing heavily in the category. Uh, and, and and get us to that uh, level of awareness that will bring the uh, bring the hard seltzers to to a level of of growth and and market size uh, that's interesting for everyone. Um, right now, one uh, one of the questions people ask is, well, how is it compared to the U.S.? Well, uh, hard seltzers in Mexico are really in 2016, 2017. Uh, in terms of where where it was in the U.S. and and so we are still when it boomed it was really in 2019 2020 uh, and so we're like three years from there um, and the thing about CPG is that um, it's kind of it's kind of planting a plant where it doesn't matter how much more water you put into it you need to let it grow it's not going to grow faster just because you pour more water into it. And so I, I think, I think that probably resonates to a lot of businesses, uh, but it definitely rings true for CPG. When Fitzer was working with bottlers in Mexico at the beginning and, and right now, is, is it one bottler that would allow you to penetrate all of the Mexican market or is it a constellation of bottlers? And to, to follow up on that previous question are either of the, the duopoly big players that are that are the beer manufacturers, are they able to box you out of any part of that, like producer or distribution chain? Yeah, so in Mexico, if you want to produce beer, there aren't any good, there aren't really any medium-sized brewers. They're all really small and craft. Um, so just to give you an idea, like the, there's no one that has a good size because uh, there's a huge duopoly, so there's no one uh, producing enough uh, a, a product, and and and, no, and and the ones that produce for most of the uh, uh, small craft beers here in Mexico, they're very small. And so, um, there are uh, many co-packers uh, which we employ for for Fitzer that do a lot of. Uh, things in the RTD space, in the ready-to-drink space, canned cocktail space, um, uh, value wine space, uh, coolers, and all these, uh, and 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 some sodas, regional sodas, etc. So there are co-packers that we that that we use, and um, and there's some, and even the large companies uh, use these co-packers. So so you'll see ABI and Heineken. Um, contracting out certain certain SKUs that uh, that they can't produce because they need a smaller scale, 
because their minimum the production minimums are very high um, and so they might contract out uh, some stuff uh, some specific things that might be seasonal or in and out etc um, and so that's what we use but we, we we've never been boxed out by by producers in that in that sense and we where you can feel the crunches in terms of of uh, of commodities, right? Because if Coke decides that they want to buy all the slim cans in or increase their purchase by twenty percent, that like that creates chaos in the in the aluminum market. That creates chaos in the can market, um, and and that's how you could get boxed out, right? Uh, there was a lot of panic in twenty. 21 um, about getting and uh, about getting cans because most of the large producers decided they wanted to have a huge stock of cans in, in case they ran out and so that started pushing everyone out and and then we were just outside outside of people's office begging for for uh, for space in the production line and so uh, that's that's a way that you can be boxed out um, that's that's about that's about it, I think. Uh, but those are true. There's a very real ways where you can lose your business. You, you just don't have any commodities to use to produce your. You have no inputs, right? What's the regulatory environment for alcohol in Mexico and in Latin America from the producer side? And if you were to try to expand, you, you mentioned Central America in your intro answer. Would that be a difficult thing to do based on the the laws and licenses, or would that be something that wouldn't be too difficult? Yeah, so we actually sell in a couple of uh, Central American markets, and we're working towards expanding in South America. <clears throat> um, I don't think it's it's not very complicated. Um, there is no three tier system like there is in the U.S., where no one can produce. I mean, there's three parts of the business: producing, distributing, and um, uh, and selling. Um, and so you can't sell alcohol. Uh, distribute or produce you, you can't do two out of those three or three out of those three so you have to be a very different uh, entity and so uh, or own the brand so the people who own the brand have distributors and distributors sell to the supermarkets who are independently owned and and so uh, here in Latin America it doesn't matter so the, the, the a lot of, so the beer big beer companies have their own stores and they distribute directly and they sell directly. And we do, and we and we use 3PLs and we have our direct contact with all the supermarkets, et cetera. And when it comes to ex exportation, we just have a distributor, a local distributor that sells directly to the supermarkets. Um, and what you need to do is make sure that your labeling uh, goes according with uh, whatever the local regulation is. I think that's just the bigger, the biggest blocker, but uh, because it increases your your, your cost. Uh, if you have to print a label and put it on the can, that increases your costs, your cost, and uh, and it makes it difficult to uh, to move faster. That's that's about it. It's 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 a labeling thing. Um, outside of anything else, um, it seems small, but uh, in consumer goods if something increases your costs then your margin is lower or your ability to to grow to grow revenue becomes uh, more limited because it affects the the, the final the, the price the public price
You mentioned that you got your MBA at Wharton. Coincidentally, one of my last interviews was with Greg Mitchell, who also got his MBA at Wharton and now is a VC in Peru. What about this program is so uniquely international and especially towards the region of Latin America? So, so one of the reasons I decided to go to Wharton was because I, when I was, when I was at Uber, a lot of the people who I admired a lot within Uber Latin America were all from Wharton. And, and, and then I started realizing how strong the Wharton network is in Latin America. Uh, and it's been like this for a while. So, so just for, I don't know if you know Topo Chico. I'm uh, under 21, so I've never heard of Topo Chico. It's, it's a sparkling water. Joking. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, <laughs> so it's a sparkling water from Monterrey. It's been around here for like more than a hundred years. And so the guy who found, who started Topo Chico, he, he sent his son to Warren. And that was 1910, 1915. And so, so, so it's been, it's a network that's been building out for a very long time uh, here in the North of Mexico and, and in Latin America in general, I think, uh, a lot of people have been going from Latin America to Wharton, at least in the in the, in the business space, uh, and, uh, and and it's it's a network that's been growing for for decades, and so if not a century, and so that's why I think it's a pretty strong. One. Could you tell the audience more about your time at Uber in Mexico City and also Lyft in Europe, and how you were both uh, fighting incumbents with the taxis and, and governments with, with Lyft or with, with Lime and, and Uber. Could you, could you tell us how those experiences really allowed you to build a, you know, a strong skill set to found Fitzer? So moving into the, into the CPG space was a little bit of a relief because I never had, I never had to see anyone close my business. Like I, I've, I've never been afraid of getting shut down. Um, so I was in Mexico City, but the markets, even though I was in Mexico City, I was most of my time I spent them in the Caribbean markets. Um, but the, the markets honestly are pretty similar throughout in terms of there's always a local government that uh, responds to the interests of, of taxi unions, which tend to be super corrupt and they uh, and in some cases, uh, they respond to uh, to to or, organized crime, um, and so it become it, it can get very dangerous in certain parts of of Mexico to launch Uber because uh, people's lives are threatened, um, and ta and 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 driver lives are threatened. And so in a lot of those cities, a lot of things happened. Uh, a lot of Ubers got burnt out, uh, drivers got kidnapped, and so uh, operations got shut down. In in the Caribbean, we never had such things. Uh, we did have in Puerto Rico. I remember um, the the Taxi Drivers Association would um, would look out for Ubers and and try to stop them, trying to get the passengers out of the cars, and then sometimes try to uh, assault the drivers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these are things that can happen in different markets, depending how aggressive the, the taxi union is. Usually, it, usually markets that have a, a big tourist um, 
uh, a lot of a lot of tourists traveling to the market have the most aggressive unions. So if you think about Puerto Rico, the, the union was a lot more aggressive than in Santo Domingo. Uh, in Punta Cana, in Dominican Republic, we never launched because the union is so aggressive that the even the hotel owners are like, we don't want you guys to launch. Even the tourists want it because the union is just going to uh, become very violent. And so it's good, it's not gonna attract any more tourists. Um, and so if you are in a market that's not very touristy, it's a lot easier uh, in terms of violence because you, you won't get that much violence. And uh, it's, it's more of a term uh, in terms of trying to figure out how to work with the government. Uh, to make sure that uh, people have a chance to also make a living and that consumers get a better uh, a, a better choice or another choice. Um, but yeah, and in terms of Lyme, Lyme was harder to, um, to implement in terms of, of, of being a little bit more bold uh, with government regulations. Um, in Uber, we could always play in a gray area where, well, it's not regulated, so um, you can always go to court, and while you're in court, you can still operate, and, and you can get an injunction or whatever, and, and there's a lot of ways to get through it, then you pass legislation uh, and make sure you're you're in the green. But in Lyme and in all this uh, uh, shared, uh, shared scooter, shared bike businesses, it's very hard to do it because you are in public and it's very easy for the for the municipality just just to take your bikes away or your scooters away so you need to be sure you're in line with what the municipality wants and be on their good side um but the 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 local governments can really make it uh, impossible to 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 make a business out of it for example in in a couple of cities in latin america even though they're they were hugely popular the government would just limit the amount of scooters you could have per city. And it's not a business if you can only have 200 scooters. It's impossible to have your fixed costs are too high. And so it's impossible to make a business out of it. Or if they're not limiting the amount of scooters, they're charging you um, uh, crazy amounts of money just to operate your business. And so that's not a business either. Um, and so for a little while, when the when, when, when different brands were competing against each other and there was a lot of VC money involved, um, people were making those very bad business decisions to just uh, uh, pay all this cash uh, to, to run a business. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a very highly regulated uh, um, uh, business. And during the pandemic, it, it went bust because there was no one on the streets. Uh, and now it's picking up again. Um, so hopefully, so hopefully, uh, I, I hope it gets better. Um, I know uh, in in certain cities in Europe it works it works really well, and in Latin America as well, and in the U.S. Uh, but but yeah, but it's it's one of those businesses that got forced to become a a break even or profitable business very violently uh, because of the pandemic. So hopefully. That, that that they can get to that soon. Was it ever hard at Lime, uh, Uber, or even now Fitzer to compete against incumbents when uh, maybe they weren't playing by the rules? Was it ever difficult 
you, you gave some examples, but what, was it ever tough to play by the rules? And, and did these companies always play by the rules because maybe they were held to a different legal standard than, say, the taxi unions? Yeah. So, so in terms of taxi unions being violent and, and, and all this stuff, it was, I mean, there's, there's no, you can't play their game because you're not going to do the same thing, but uh, it was very frustrating. Yeah. For, because the, a lot, a lot of the, the cops or the, or the general authority level uh, officials would not, would not do anything about it. So that was very frustrating. Uh but when you know you're giving, you're providing a service or you have a product that people want to buy, um, at the end of the day, um, the consumer decides what they want, right? And um, if incumbents are are pushing you out, but people are pulling you in, then you shouldn't be worried. At the end of the day, if people want your product, they're going to buy your product and <laughs> even if it's as we know people buy illegal things because they want it there, there's nothing uh and uh, that can that can, that the government can do or or taxi unions can do or other businesses can do to stop you if people want this kind of products um if they don't want it then or they kind of want it but don't really care for it then yeah they, you can be easily pushed out uh but as long as you you have a product that people want and that and that you think is the best one in the market and that you're pushing for that, uh, it becomes harder and harder for incumbents to do it uh, unless they just, they just copycat you and do, do it themselves. Um, but in, in, in case, in terms of uh, Uber, I don't think the taxi unions would ever do a, uh, they don't have the, the capabilities to do their own apps. Um, and in terms of scooters, they don't, uh, I don't know who the, who the competition would be in terms of unions, but uh, I don't. I didn't see anyone else try to do it. Uh, in terms of Fitzer, yeah, that's 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 the one where where it's harder to come to to be uh, very differentiated because uh, the incumbents do have the capabilities to do something similar than you that, that you are doing, right? Um, but you need to make sure that you have a different message, that you create a, a strong community and a strong brand. Uh, and being the first to the market is a huge, huge advantage in this in this space. Um, and if you can build the right um, cap table and and have the right the right people on board, um, then you can fight the fight. Okay, so finally, I have to ask Peter Thiel's famous contrarian question but with a uniquely Samia VC twist: What important truth about Latin America do very few people agree with you on? So, so I have a couple of those. Um, one is, I think a couple of people would, would agree, maybe not others, but I think outside cash in Latin America is more a pop, a, sees more of the potential in Latin America than Latin American cash. Um, and, and and you just have to look at a lot of the large startups in Latin America where their money comes from and it's and and most of the people leading these rounds are not are not are do not have Latin, Latin cash um and another one I would say a lot of people fight me on this one but, but Travis Kalanick probably is responsible for a lot of the uh, startup scene in or responsible for the startup scene in many countries in Latin America. 
maybe Colombia is not one of them because Rappi was was there and and Rappi and Uber are are really big there. But at least in Mexico, I can tell you that you can you can if you throw a stone in a in a in a startup meeting or in a in, in a meet and greet, you'll you'll hit a lot of Uber people. Uh, and and that's just because of that that drive that vibe that a lot of the Latin uh, Uber folks had and and the network they they built and uh, a lot of the great things that they all went to build um, and so uh, that that might seem a very contrarian view I think in in the, in the U.S. for sure. Well, Patricio, thank you so much for coming on the Smee VC podcast today. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Trip. Thank you for watching this episode of the Samia VC podcast. My name is Trip Gorman. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you view the podcasts. And also check out our weekly newsletter, DealFlow LA, which can be found by going to dealflow.la. Thank you.